Hey everyone, welcome to B2B Made Simple. I'm Sam Moss, the CEO and co-founder of OneClick Agency. On this show, I interview marketing experts from fast-growing B2B SaaS companies. We feature podcast episodes I'm a guest on, and sometimes we throw in a consulting call I've done with another company. Our goal with this show is to equip you and give you the tools you need to be the best marketer you can be. Hey everybody, welcome back to B2B Made Simple. I'm really excited about the guest I have on the podcast today, uh, Mr. Kyle Lacey, the Senior Vice President of Marketing at Seismic. Um, Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. Um, So for some people listening to the show, they one might already know you, two, they might not. Um, And the people that know you might be surprised by the Senior Vice President of Seismic. So can you just give us like the rundown of, on what's been going on the last few months uh, with you and Lessonly? Yeah, so I, I've been a I've been at Lessonly for it'll be five years in February, and we actually we were just acquired by Seismic at the beginning of August of of twenty and um, we have over the past couple of months we've just been integrating the teams, and um, I'm very lucky to now be able to serve both marketing uh, teams at Lessonly and at Seismic as we continue integrations. Of course, through any acquisition, there is the, there's the melding of the two brands and, and that's just our biggest projects right now. So try to figure that out. You know, it's not really the theme of this podcast by any means, but I am curious, what has it been like going through an acquisition as the lead marketer at you know, Lessonly? What are a couple of things that you learned? Uh, through the acquisition, um, you know, I, I learned that brand building is one of the more important things you can do to add value to a software company outside of revenue creation, which I think you, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, today. So that's number one. Number two is, um, you know, make sure that make sure you spend a lot of time understanding how the other side works, the other side functions. I think I've been through situations where the acquiring company doesn't care or, or, and, and the acquisition goes poor, the integration goes poorly because there wasn't communication, right? Um, You know, it's, it's easier when you have two successful companies coming together, which is the case Mm -hmm. with the Leslie and Seismic um, integration. So for me, it's, it proved the value of, of all the time and energy that we spent on the brand at Lessonly. And then it also proved that you can, you can work really hard and communicate effectively with, with taking two teams and putting them together. And it can be done. Mm-hmm. Like as mm-hmm. long as you, as long as you actively, as long as you proactively communicate with each mm-hmm. other. Yeah. That makes total sense. Um, well, cool. I guess we'll count that as some like some bonus content for the episode. Um, but this is something I didn't do. I didn't kick it technically kick it off yet. But my my opening question to you is: If you had to choose between Coke and Pepsi, what would you choose? <laughs> uh, so I don't I don't drink soda. But if I were to choose based off of brand, it would be Coke. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. you okay, that, there's a great there's a great guy on Twitter named Adam Singer. And he's, he's actually a human that exists out of Twitter, but this is where I follow him is on Twitter. And he shared a, um, he shared an image of the brand changes that Pepsi has been through since the creation of Pepsi and the mm-hmm. brand changes that Coca-Cola has been through. And 
the amount of change that happens on the Pepsi side just shows why they are second and Coke is yeah. first and Coke, that curse of Coke has been from the very beginning. They haven't changed it much. That's why I yeah. would choose Coke. <laughs> I, I like your thinking there. And it's funny. I think they talk about it in the book 22, I think it's 22 immutable laws of marketing, just yeah. like it's tough to beat like number one, if you, if you stay true. So I like that. That's, that's a good piece of uh, advice. And also like another great piece of advice is just don't drink soda. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> too much sugar folks. Too much. Yes. Sugar. Uh, agreed there. Um, well, cool. So I, I mentioned this to you before we, we hopped on the call, but you posted something on LinkedIn that I, I thought was really interesting. You broke it down very well. Um, and I'd love to base this, this talk around it and just kind of dive into really the nitty gritty of what you meant and just go deeper on the post. So the post, um, the title was something along the lines of the three main responsibilities of a marketing team. And I think that many marketing teams, especially in the SaaS world, can get distracted. Um, shiny objects can come along. They are basing their measurements off of activity instead of business metrics. And I think today you're just going to kind of set the record straight on what should be done on the side of the marketing um, function. So I'll read through like the three that we had, and then we can dive into, or the three that you had in the post and kind of okay. recap, and then we'll just dive into each one. So the first one was, um, you need to be crafting the best story possible for the company and the market. And then you said, hint, this is not category creation. Number two is you need to be building a culture and a movement that scales. And then number three was creating new revenue and pipeline, um, sourcing it and not influencing. So I thought those were really good, uh, three really good pillars. So let's jump into the first one, um, crafting the best story possible for the company and the market. Uh, and like you said, hint, this is not category creation. My first question for you is why not? Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I disclaimer is that it can be, it really mm -hmm. depends on the company and it's really easy for me to just wax poetic on a social, on a social <laughs> site, right? It's different for every company, but yeah. category creation can be included in that. But ultimately the, the narrative is around um, how you position yourself as a product or service and what value are you giving the customer? And a lot of times startups, especially high growth or at least venture back startups, if they haven't found product market fit, they probably shouldn't be thinking of category creation. Like you, you're not gonna create a category if you're still trying to figure out how to scale a company. The companies that create categories, you know, Gainsight's probably the best example with Anthony um, Canato when, when they did, you know, the customer success type category, right? Um, you've got to be a market leader to do it, in my opinion. Now, there are certain situations where that is, I can be proven wrong because there are certain companies that grow exponentially fast and uh, they can position themselves appropriately. But the narrative is the value that you bring to the customer. Um, and that could be done through your mission, vision, and values, which is kind of the second one. But it could also be done through value selling, as an example. Like you can, you can talk all day long about um, we are the leading, um, we're the leading accounting software on the planet. And everybody else is going to say that, like, that's not a narrative. Tell a story about how the customer uses you and what value they get out of it. Right. I mean, that's the true, 
That's true marketing. My favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes in marketing is from Ben Horowitz when he said the company story, I think I'm going to butcher this actually. Do you know what quote I'm talking about? The company story is the company strategy, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, The way you tell your story, the way you enable your sellers to tell the story, the way the product tells the story is the strategy. Um, And the customers are part of that. And that goes into number two with the culture and community. But it's also how do you talk about it uh, on a day-to-day basis? And most of the time, companies are terrible at it. They're just not good at it. It reads like a brochure and... You need to tell a story, a, a life in the day of the customer and what value you bring to their daily routine. That's a story worth telling. So why do you think these companies are just not good at it? Is it? It's hard. Just, yeah. So how do we get better at it? <laughs> Great question. You know, I, I'll, I'll use Leslie as an example. We, we lived in a bunch of different categories right? There was never really a true category until we landed on, well, even when we landed on sales readiness, it wasn't a true category for us. Um, Now, eventually the product turned into that because we focused on it. But at the time when we were building out the narrative and the story and all that, it didn't, it it wasn't there. And so for us, we used our mission statement as our go-to-market narrative because our mission statement is we help people do better work so they can live better lives. And for three and a half years, do better work was the leading, the, the leading um, uh, content on our website. And our CEO wrote a book, do better work. And it has that allowed us to scale culture. Our product was built around the tenants of doing better work. Um, we had an onboarding experience and a strategy, um, a, a strategy, uh, well, a system built on the back end where, they go through a do better work model. Like we, we built it deeply into all parts of our messaging and positioning. And it worked because we, we were not cornering ourselves in a specific category. Mm-hmm. Now, as the company grows bigger and you move up market and your deals get larger, you've got to start cornering uh, so, that, so that you can get a seat at the table in the Fortune 1000. Um, mm-hmm. So that's because lessonly we had to tell the story with the mission statement. A lot of a lot of companies just try to put their product features as their story on their website, and that's mm-hmm. just boring as hell. Like I just <laughs> it just doesn't matter because people do not buy that way. Mm-hmm. I, it does not matter, and that's why you've seen. Sorry, man, I could talk about this all day long. That's why you've seen product led growth and usage mm-hmm. based pricing. That's why that stuff works now, because. The product is easy to use and it solves a problem and it keeps introducing new problems to solve. Mm-hmm. And most software, high growth software, the ones that are doing it right are doing that. And they're telling the story through their product in a way that it's, that it's proving value, not screaming at somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, you had mentioned a few minutes ago that companies try to jump into category creation um, before they even realize that they have a product market fit. And, you know, a question I was coming into this was like, well, like, are you against category creation? Is it just that people are doing it wrong and just execute it and it has like a bad stigma? So really they're just skipping step one is essentially what you're saying, right? 
Yeah, I, I'm not against category creation. I'm against it being done in a silo without having any idea what the actual category is because you don't have mm -hmm. product market fit. And your customers have no idea what you do, right? Like the original customers of a product, like the, the OGs of the Lessonly customer base are completely different than what our use case is now. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if we, and we, and we have tried over the years to do like learning automation as a category, nobody was saying learning automation. So it didn't work because we were like, it's going to be learning automation and nobody cared. Right. You've got to, you've got to find the fit from the product. You've got to figure out what the value is. And then your customers have to agree with it because if your customers don't agree with it, they're not going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Right. It's kind of, it's where, um, it's when you start seeing categories roll out and you have conversations with customers and they're like, I don't even know what you're saying. And we were a customer. So you got to be very careful with how, how far you push that. But I see it. I see value in category creation. Like I said before, is when, is when the analysts that are talking about it actually have an impact in your sales cycle, which is usually more enterprise. Yeah. And I think I'm in the same boat with you. It's I've seen it executed really well. I think drift early on did a really great job. Um, yeah. There's, I mean, multiple different examples of, of companies that have done a great job, but then again, you see Mark Dave, like, Dave did it. Dave did it. Sorry. That, um, Dave's one of my favorite examples mm -hmm. of this. They, but they told the story off the value. Yeah. Get, get no more forms. It's mm -hmm. like Mark Benioff with no more software. Right. Yeah. It's like, the value was there and then they built the story off of it. Do mm -hmm. I necessarily agree with their category positioning uh, after that? Not necessarily because it started right. getting a little um, jumbled. Mm -hmm. I think that would be the word I would use as well. And yeah. I think a lot of companies, they actually start out with a jumbled and it's these three massive words that actually don't really describe their category. And you have to really think and figure out is that a category or like, what are they trying to do there? And I think that marketers just tend to overthink everything, not everything, not there, all. There are only, there are only a handful <laughs> of people that can say they've done it. You've got yeah. marketing automation, which I can't remember if it was Eloqua or Marketo. I'm sorry. I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure it was Eloqua. And then you've got gain sight with customer success. Um, I would argue that seismic was kind of at the leading edge of sales enablement hmm. so what anthony says in any of his talks about category creation is that if you start seeing titles job titles changing to that yeah that is when you know you've won and there are very few people that can say they've done it because nobody does it well mm -hmm. except for those that's an interesting ones. way to say it the job titles yeah i guess that is the proof that you can you can see some like people are actually understanding the term and yep. using it in everyday life um very interesting. Um, so for you, when it comes to crafting the story, uh, I think this is pretty interesting. Do you follow a framework by any means, or is it just like, this is how it, it kind of comes together? So the framework, it, this is a, uh, not really, but I can give some guidance around it. Mm -hmm. There are, there is a high level messaging, you know, for lessonly it was do better work. Right. And then when we built out content, it was either relational content or operational content. Relational content was more around how to be a great leader, how to be learn about nonviolent communication. How do you work with your teammates to be as proactive as possible? 
How do you, you know, so it was investing on the relational side of the people we were selling. Mm-hmm. Um, CMO.com, uh, Adobe's CMO.com is a great example of sometimes they have articles in there about how to balance parenting with being a, being a CMO. Mm-hmm. Like how do you balance your kid's time with work time? That's the relational component of that. They don't do a lot of that anymore, but they used to do a lot of it. And then operational is specific to the value that the product's bringing. Like if we have a product launch or, you know, and you can shift either way based off of where the market's at. So when we went into the pandemic in March and April of 2020, we shifted all of our content, all of our demand, everything to relational. And we hired career coaches for our furloughed customers. We hired mental health experts. We did webinars with um, career, career consultants, career coaches, um, mm-hmm. because it, the market was dictating that we would do that. And we had the ability to shift between the two. So that I don't, you know, the best frameworks are, you know, and Andy Raskin has my favorite framework. It's the, you know, like everybody, everybody pretty much says Andy Raskin, but his, his story, his narrative framework is the best that there is. Mm-hmm. So I'd check that out. You brought up a really good point about the content or the story strategy. You said it was operational and then relationship, uh, relational, right? Or Rela- relationship based. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's really human based, more human, human. Okay. Um, I see a lot of companies focusing on like the operational mm-hmm. and they don't realize that they need the relation relational or the relationship content that impacts your buyer on a career or a personal level. And it's almost, you can almost call it like top of funnel content that kind of like sparks interest that, Oh, it brings some like brand affinity to what you're doing. But I think that it needs to be continued throughout the entire funnel and long into when they're customers, yeah. because if your content doesn't apply to them afterwards, then the relationship is going to end, right? Yeah, and it's hard. It's hard for marketers. It's hard for content marketing. It's hard for product marketing professionals because the leadership teams of these companies look at content like how to be a great parent and be like, what? How does this apply to what we do? Mm-hmm. The reality is that I am a I am a marketing leader. And I am a parent and I am a husband and I run on the weekends. Like there, there's this um, mentality that we always have to talk about what we do as a product or service and not speak to just the general things that, that we, we, that, that surround our work day. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying, I'm not saying it's 80% of your content. I'm saying like take 10 or 20% and write about the people but like a great way to do it, let's do it. An easy way to do it is to just do a podcast and interview a bunch of customers and ask them a variety of operational and relational questions. That's why I did revenue diaries, which was one season. I asked, I asked sales and marketing leaders five questions about everything other than work. And they didn't receive the questions ahead of time. And it was, and so you got to learn a little bit about these revenue leaders that you would never have known unless you were to do some, some sleuthing, which I did, mm-hmm. but that, you know, it adds value that most people can't. Yeah. I, I, a hundred percent agree with that. Um, cool. Well, let's, let's move on to point right. number two here. Um, we have building a culture and a movement that scales. And then you said brand plus employee plus prospects. 
plus customers. Um, can you dive into that? Yeah. So a lot of times, um, a lot of times a company will try to build separate cultures from their internal culture. And then like their customer community, like for some reason, well, it's because they live in different teams most of the time, but they usually do them in silos. The reality is, is that you want your culture, your mission, vision, values, the way you think about building your company to extend outside of your company. And so if you look at um, Salesforce is a great example. You look at the, where I worked at Exact Target, the, they got the foundational components right to culture. And then they scaled it outside. So you, you were onboarded at Exact Target as part of orange onboarding. Orange was the brand color. And then the employees had orange culture and then the customers had orange culture. And then the, our, our uh, connections, our user conference, that was 20,000 people had orange culture, right? Pros so mm -hmm. it's employees, customers, prospects. At Lessonly, we did the same thing. Max and Connor built a culture of, of values and a mission and vision that scaled with the company. And the way we did that at Lessonly was we, Max wrote a book about the values, right? The mm -hmm. books do better work. We have given away over 10,000, but every new employee gets a book. And all you have to do is, is it's a two hour read and you fully understand the way we do business. Mm -hmm. And that created a movement. It created a Somebody read the Do Better Work book and loved the section about nonviolent communication and bought five more and sent it to their team. And you can understand the, the um, and it had nothing to do with our product. Mm -hmm. Zero, zero to do with our product, but it worked because it was the, it was the relational element. Our user conference, Yellowship, this is the first year where we'll, we will have some product stuff. Usually we don't have any product. It's all like, um, more about leadership development and, and uh, just development as a human. So it yeah, has to start. You can, you can try as much as possible to build a community of customers and to build a culture outside. But if you don't start from the beginning and you don't have, if your employee base does not believe in what you're talking about, it's not going to work. It's not mm -hmm. going to scale. It's going to be, um, you know, you'll, you, might, you might still win, depending on your definition of winning, but it's going to be, it's going to be a difficult road um, instead of having something that's foundational. Mm -hmm. And you guys executed this really well, even like from the beginning, you said it was uh, what's your, what was your tagline? It was uh, do better work, right? Yeah. That was all over your website and that was your mission statement. But yep. it poured over into the prospects on your website, your customer, your buyers and customers. Yeah. Um, and that was just your mission statement. Yeah. And that, and, and it worked because we, we were category agnostic mm -hmm. and our, and we sell coaching and training software. So yeah, yeah, it helps you do better work. And it was the mission statement. And sometimes companies have to go through, um, realignments on that stuff and that's fine. We just got very lucky that Max our CEO at the time, uh, well, technically he still is the CEO, but he's, you know, through an acquisition that changes, <laughs> but he, uh, he built uh, mission, vision and values that never changed. And mm -hmm. they're still foundational and they have impact when you are, 
when you have family members talking about a value from the company, you've figured it out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it means it's actually having true impact. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to this because I'm pretty passionate about it. It's just the relational content. Um, and you had given like a, a disclaimer, like, hey, like you don't have to do 80% of your content relational, like don't freak out. I actually think it's more important than companies actually like give credit to. And you guys, you wrote the book, your conference was all about relational content. Um, what has that done for you from a brand perspective or even from um, like a revenue perspective that you can, f- I know you can't measure everything, but you've gotten a pulse of, man, this has really driven a lot of our success. Is that true for you guys? Yeah, I think that, so what we did, and this kind of goes into the third thing that we're going to talk about, but what we did early on, uh, mostly because I, we have a brilliant CFO, Brian Montminy, we, we took 80%, 70-80% of the marketing budget, which included headcount, was driven towards revenue creation. So everything you can think of when you talk to growth marketers. 20-30% of the headcount and program spend was, was dedicated to brand. And we didn't measure any of it. I mean, you had like MPS scores on events. You, you made, you wanted to make sure you had 90% attendance rates on these virtual Mm -hmm. events. Like there were, it's not like we didn't measure anything. We just didn't sit down and say the X amount of money we spent every quarter on brand, did it equal an ROI three to one, Mm -hmm. five to one. We never Mm -hmm. talked about that. Um, And what that allowed us to do was create experiences for people that truly had impact. And like when we did, um, like we've sent out 5,000 golden llamas. I didn't measure the ROI on giving a golden llama. Like who cares? We've done Mm -hmm. a board games. We've done Lego llamas. We've done virtual, most of our virtual events have 90% attendance rates. Um, because my team is, is focused on the best experience possible for this person, not how many people can we get in there to, to make sure we have pipeline coverage. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it's not important. It just means there's a time and a place for that stuff. And the, the brand impact, if done correctly, is usually on the value, the perceived value of the company in the market especially for venture-backed software companies. Um, you know, as, as your brand grows, as your revenue grows, there's a perceived value there that matters. Um, and if, if brand is done correctly with community development amongst the customer base, if you get, you know, making, making your customers heroes was one of the exact target values. Like if you did, if you do that correctly, it will work and it works really well. And then you will be seen as a market leader because you've developed a community and not because you've created a category. I think a good way to sum it up would be if you, when you start measuring the direct impact or attribution of brand building activities, it doesn't become a brand building activity anymore you're now in a marketing activity trying to get leads. If you guys had said, I wonder how many inbound requests we're going to get or demo requests we're going to get because we send out these llamas, it totally negates and cancels out everything you just did, right? Yeah, and there and there look, there every business is different. Like 
se- seismic, it's a completely different discussion, right? It's just a completely mm-hmm. different business model. Um, Salesforce is completely different than exact target where I was at before. So there's a lot of nuance there that's important, but the number one thing is you need, so the only way, I mean, going into three, the only way that you can do that, like what I just said with mm-hmm. taking like 20, 30% is if you create revenue first as a marketer, yeah. earn a seat at the table and then ask for something like fun money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's probably yeah. the t- that was probably the yeah. worst way I could have possibly put it. <laughs> you like you have to you have to create pipe and you have to be bonused. Your variable component should be bonus should be on pipeline creation or revenue creation. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, then you can then you can say, all right, let's be creative with some of this stuff because we have proven value on the revenue side. Mm-hmm. And I think a good example of that is a podcast. Um, yeah. I, I like to tell people because people ask me a lot like, hey, when do you think it's a good time to start a podcast? And I think the best time to start a podcast is when you actually don't need a podcast because you're doing all the <laughs> <Yeah>. correct marketing. <laughs> you're doing your fundamentals. You're, you're already um, contributing to pipeline and revenue the podcast is just icing on top and that can go for a lot of different brand activities. Um, so I think you're a hundred percent right on that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and that's what makes it fun. Yeah. Like I've been in, I've been in marketing orgs and I've worked with marketing orgs, whether it's been at a consulting level or just as a venture cap working at a venture capital firm where it's all about revenue Mm -hmm. and it's a bunch of growth marketers and some of them probably have fun, but you've got to have a balance of both. You've got to have the creativity. You've got to be able to make irrational decisions. Um, you know, true, true creativity comes from irrational decision-making. And that's, that's not for me. Rory Sutherland, who's the chairman at uh, Publicis, I think, he, he wrote a book called Alchemy that talks about, you know, usually data when it comes to truly creative is your data is the usually wrong. It's really the gut because most humans don't make decisions off of data as much as we would like to think we do. <laughs> How often do you think you follow your gut when it comes to a decision? All, it's much to my team's pain all the time. <laughs> but you have to have a balance. Like I, we have a balance. Like I know I will always make decisions in that way. And mm-hmm. I have the balance of people that are in, that are data that are that are data crunchers and they they're deep in the analytics and they're doing click rate optimizations and they're doing split testing with ads and all that stuff um you know i would like to think i'm usually right but sometimes it's wrong but i I, i'm more of a gut um a gut marketer than the data marketer yeah um something i just thought of when it comes to like creating revenue and pipeline is I, I feel like that's like the mantra now, especially on LinkedIn, just like for, for B2B marketers. And it is very true. And I think that like, as you think about a podcast or some of these brand building activities, some of the lines are kind of skewed because you're like, well, how does this impact revenue and pipeline? But what you're saying, and now I, I kind of see like how this can go together is you need to create pipeline and revenue first so that yeah. you can go do the activities that you can't actually find out if they impact because then you can do them correctly, right? Yeah, and there you can get pretty wonky on 
attribution modeling and showing growth in 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 um, uh, downloads of a podcast. Like you can you can measure anything. Mm-hmm. My question to marketers is: Should you? Mm-hmm. You shouldn't. You should not measure everything. Now, if you have to, great, fine. That's this is how Lessonly did it. That does not mean it's right for every business. Um, we, but if you're a startup, you need to find the revenue first, and it's marketing's job to do that. Um, is to find that revenue. I don't care if it's inbound or it's outbound or it's PLG of product-led growth. I don't care what it is. Mm -hmm. It's marketer's job to create the market. And then you can figure out all the rest of it because you gotta gotta have revenue in order to be a market leader. You can't do a bunch of brand stuff and and win. Mm -hmm. You gotta (laughs) do both. You won't be there very long. Yeah, Yeah, you won't. And the marketer, (laughs) yeah. Or you won't be there very long, right? (laughs) Um, I have one more question for you. you put in parentheses that marketers should be sourcing and not influencing revenue and pipeline. Um, can you close us out by saying why that is? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I'm, I'm assuming that this is very different for some large enterprise type marketing teams where sales cycles are extremely long. I just have a real hard time with we influenced hundred percent of the revenue. Mm-hmm. Like wh- wh- when is there a time <laughs> that marketing shouldn't influence hundred percent of the revenue? Like mm-hmm. what? I don't understand where there's like 80% of the revenue was. Influenced I don't by know marketing. how you that's, couldn't. I think that's, exactly. like, that's why I, I hope just, that that's impossible. <laughs> now attribution modeling where you tie, where you tie a dollar amount, depending on what, it, what it sh- um, shape you're using or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of outside of my scope. That, that, that makes more sense to me. But when you're like, we had, uh, we had $50 million of pipe in the room and you put that event influenced $50 million. It just seems crazy to me. Like what? Mm -hmm. Great. What is that telling you? It's not telling you anything, (laughs) you know, but if you can create content that moves somebody to do something and, and they have a great time and MPS scores are high. I care more about that type of data than I do. I mean, I care about, I care about seeing somebody cry at one of the con- Leslie conferences than I do whether or not there's $10 million of pipe in the room. Yeah. Cause then, you know, it's impactful. Then you, as long as it's not like they stub their toe or something, as long as it's like <laughs> <laughs> something that actually tears. matters. <laughs> Well, awesome, Kyle. This has been a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. Um, can you close it's this my out pleasure. by sharing? Yeah, man. Can you share where people can find uh, more about you uh, on the internet, I guess? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can go Twitter. It's Kyle P. Lacey. Uh, you can go to LinkedIn, type in Kyle Lacey. Those are, those are the two places I usually spend the most time. Awesome, man. Well, congrats on the acquisition. Thanks. Congrats on your new role. Um, pretty exciting that this will be uh, releasing right around then. So um, thanks again, man. Appreciate you being here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.